series undignified our last sermon on that and uh, I really trust that God will speak to us tonight I really do believe that he's going to and uh, we are really looking forward to see what God is going to say to us tonight our Hebrew word for tonight is Barak Barak and of course you know that means to kneel to bless as an act of adoration to bow down in adoration in worship to fall down bowing before God, you know, with like, it's, it's, it's just so easy for you when you see who God is, that you will bow before Him as an act of worship towards Him. Let's open up the Bible tonight, and then let's read from Psalm 2, verse 11, uh, yeah, chapter 11, verse 1 to 5. You've got your Bible you can follow in your Bible, otherwise it's here on the screen. Sorry, Psalm. Yeah, two Samuel. Yeah, that one. Two Samuel, eleven, one to five. That is it. Exactly that one. Did I say Psalms? I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. Long day. It was my mom's 80th birthday today, so uh I uh, had to cut that short to come and preach to you today, so yeah, but it was a great birthday. Right, 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, you know, when I read that, I thought, well, that's quite interesting, sounds like hunting season, but uh, yeah, but it's not. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And that he saw from the roof a woman being bathing, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is that not Bathsheba? the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. And when she returned to her house, sorry, then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Let's pray. Yeah. Father, when we read the scripture, Lord, then we are really amazed at your word. And Father, we, uh, we look at the scripture and Father, we, we pray that you speak to us tonight. Because surely, Lord, this is a matter that, that you would want to speak to us about. And Father, I pray tonight that you'll open up our hearts just like you open up David's heart. And Lord, that you would speak truth into our lives. You'll reveal your heart to us as well. Because Lord, truly, 
there's something in this that we need to know. And this we want to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now for us to understand, just as in, you know, the, the, the moment that, that, that we are in here, or, you know, that David experience, or the sincerity of the moment, we have to go a little bit back to 2 Samuel 7. So if you read in 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that, you know, David is at the peak of his reign. David is in a good place. His kingdom is in a good place. He's in a good place with God. You know, he's just won so many battles. He's been, he was 50 years old when he was anointed king. Uh, he had his struggles with Saul. Saul is dead. He's now king. And things are going really very, very well with him. Nothing to complain about. And, you know, he thought, well, Lord, now that I'm doing so well, I'm sure that I can do something for you. And he thought, well, you know, I'm living in a, in a palace, but God, you know, he's only got a tent. And that, at that stage was, you know, well, that was the, 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 the place where they worshipped uh, in the temple, and, but it was only a tent. So he's, he's speaking to his friend, who is the prophet Nathan, and, you know, that was just a normal conversation. And he said to Nathan, Nathan, I want to build God a place of worship. I want to build a proper temple to God. And Nathan said, well, most probably that's a good thing. Do what your heart feels seems right. Nathan goes home. God visits him and says, no, David should not build that temple. On his hands is too much blood. But his son Solomon, you know, he should build the temple. It will be good for him to build the temple. Nathan comes back to David and says, David, listen, don't build the temple. Your son is going to build it. But then God gives Nathan a word for David. Incredible word. And if we look in the Bible, that's most probably one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. He uh, says there in Samuel 2 verse 7, uh, Samuel 2 7 verse 16, he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Twice in one verse, we see the word forever, forever. Now, we know that, you know, if there's something that's repeated in the Bible, you know, then we need to take notice of that. But this is quite astonishing because in two words, or, you know, twice in that one verse, God says, forever your kingdom shall be made sure. Your throne shall be established forever. And if we think about that, you know, that is actually the place where Jesus, the, that was the divinic uh, covenant that God made with David to say that out of your line, Jesus will be born. Incredible scripture. Now, you know, I, it reminded me about, you know, when we were missionaries, I, um, I was working with a group of traditional leaders, some of them witch doctors, and we were talking about the Old Testament the Bible for them to understand New Testament, Old Testament, they couldn't fully understand that. They thought, well, you know, when uh, Moses came down, one man, he explained it to me like this. He says, when Moses came down from the mountain, he had the tablets, and he saw, you know, all the Israelites sitting, so he threw them down, and they broke in two, and that's why there was an Old Testament and a New Testament. 
But he was quite sincere about that. That was his sincere. That's, it. That's how he understood that. And then for Jesus to be somewhere in the Old Testament, nobody could understand it, and nor could they understand Jesus in the New Testament as well. Because in a tradition, Jesus is the son, he's the small one, and therefore, you know, he's got no say. So where does Jesus fit in? So we're talking about God and Jesus, and I'm just not getting through, you know, about Jesus. And uh, I used to go like uh, the night before, then I'll sleep there on, on top of my truck in the open sky. That was beautiful. And then there was an old Lutheran church. So we were now gathering in this old Lutheran church, and it was early in the morning. And the doors were open and the sun was shining in. There was like a long, sunny patch that's coming in like that. But now there's no lights, of course. So we're sitting here on the darker side. And for a moment, I thought, well, most probably the best way to, un to explain it is I walked out of the door. And just like that photo, I stood on the outside so they can't see me. And I said to them, you know, can you see me? But my, sh my, my shadow was just about the halfway through the little church. And they said, well, they can't see me. I said, well, can you see my shadow? And I was moving my arms. Yes, they can see my shadow. Moving my legs. Yes, they can see. I said, is it me that is there? They said, yes, it's me. I said, no, it's my shadow. I'm standing outside. I'm not in yet. But as I move, you'll see my shadow move. So it is as if I'm inside, but I'm not inside yet. And then I walked inside and I said, well, can you see me now? Yes, they can see me. And, you know, for that moment, I said, well, that is like Christ. New Testament, we, you know, the Old Testament couldn't see him yet. But we can see him move throughout the Old Testament. He was there, but it was not him yet. New Testament, he came and he was there. And this scripture is exactly just like that. You know, he says there, uh, your kingdom shall be made forever. Jesus wasn't there yet. That is the promise that God gave David here. David is at a fantastic place. And there in uh, 2 Samuel 7, 18 to 29, he prays a prayer. Go and read it. It's absolutely beautiful. A prayer of gratitude that he gives to God. And then in chapters 8 to 10, you know, we see the victories listed there. Now, of course, those are all the victories, not the victories that was just one there. But all the victories of David, David is at a fantastic place. But then, chapter 11, what we just read now, that happened in his life. Now, we pick the story up there from verse 5, just after first wife Bathsheba sending the message to David and said, listen, I'm pregnant. And David immediately thought, now, you know, I have to defend myself here because I'm the king. And, you know, I have to be dignified about this matter. So he thought, well, the best thing to do is get Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, which he, who is, was one of his friends. He fought with Uriah many battles. That was one of his trusted friends. Go and read about the battles of Uriah. They, they, they were great. So then he says, Uriah, come back. Tell me about the war. Uriah, as they told him about the war, he says, well, go to your house. Go and say hello to your wife. Now, of course, Uriah has been, you know, in battle, hasn't seen his wife for some time. Obviously, David thought, well, he's going to sleep with his wife. Only to hear that Uriah slept in the door of the palace. He didn't go home. Because if Uriah went home, it means that, and he was sleeping with his wife, that means that he would be unclean according to the law. Because a soldier is not allowed to do that while he's in battle. 
Uriah was married. He had all the right to go home. That was his wife. But for him, the mo thing more important was his conviction toward, toward his God. I can't do that, Lord. I can't even go to my own wife because I revere you more than that. So the next night, David got him back, got him drunk, and a feast, thinking that Uriah will go. Well, not even that, not even the fact that he was intoxicated. He slept there again. Now David has to make another plan. He writes a letter to Joab, the commander, another one of his friends, best friends. They fought together. He says, you know, when, when you go into battle, put uh, Uriah in the front where it's fierce. Then what you do is, as soon as the battle is at its height, pull back. Make sure that Uriah is killed. Who carries the letter? Uriah carries that letter. And he gives it to Joab. And he dies. So the, method, the, letter, the message comes back to David. Uriah is killed. And that is how his best friend got killed by him. Because he thought, well, I'm too dignified. I can't have an undignified thing over my life. Strangely enough, you know, there's a, there's a study about sin. Hematology. So people study sin. Listen to what, you know, is said about sin or the spiral of sin. Because this is where David is finding him. He neglected his business. He was supposed to be with his soldiers there, not supposed to be at, you know, at his palace. He didn't arise that, that day in his afternoon nap to think, you know, that he's planned that he's going to become an adulterer or a conspirator or a murderer, or a hypocrite, not one of those things. But now he finds them in the spiral. It says here, the way of sin is downhill. When man, men begin to do evil, they cannot soon stop. There's an aggravation and a downward spiral of the sin. Sin gave way to a hardened of heart. And all David wanted, of course, there is to, to try to get that sin out of the, out of the way. Started with a white lie. Bring Uriah here. That was just a lie because he wanted him to sleep with his wife. But it ended up in murder. Robbing a man of his reason is worse than robbing him of his money. And drawing him to sin is worse than drawing him into a worldly trouble. Sin seldom shows itself all at once. Or even as sin at all. The temptation to sin is usually more subtle than that. And then again, once in the grip of sin, one is taken to places one never intended to go and held longer than one intended to stay. You know, I, um, I grew up in the church. It, wasn't a, you know, it was a very reformed church. And at 16, I stopped going to church because I thought, well, you know, that is just a, gr a group of hypocrites because I know exactly where we were the Saturday night and then Sunday we all sit same in, in church and the people sitting in front were with me where we were the previous night. So I stopped going to church until I was 21 years old. But during that time, I knew what this was. I knew that I was a sinner. I knew every single night before I went to bed, sin. I tried to do many things, you know, to try to dampen that down, more party and uh, 
yeah, all of those things. But sin never goes away. Once we're on that downhill, you're on that downhill. And it takes you to places that you never, ever thought that you can go. The amazing thing also is, you know, during that whole chapter, you know, we read about David and we see David with the Lord, David with the Lord, Goliath, all of those beautiful stories. But not once in that whole chapter 11 do we read the Lord somewhere there. Isn't it amazing? You know, when we get entangled with sin, that the first thing that goes out of the door or the window or out of our hearts is the Lord. Somehow, you know, we reason that out. Somehow we find the reason that now this life is the one that we would want to live. There's no place for God. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan comes to David. And he says to David, he actually tells him a story. He says, well, this was oh, a rich man. And this rich man uh, and a poor man, this poor man only had one little lamb. And, you know, he describes his little lamb. He was such a, he was so you know, in love with this little lamb. The lamb will be even sitting on his lap. The rich man had a visitor. And he wanted to give the visitor a feast. So he sent and took this, the poor man's lamb. He says he took him and he killed him. And David says, well, who would do that? The man who has done that surely should die. And then what does Nathan do? He says, David, you are that man. You are that man that took the little lamb. Now, we pick the story up there from verse 9. It says there, Nathan says to him, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you've despised me, you've taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll rise up evil against you out of your own house, and I'll take your wives before, uh, sorry, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did this in secret. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You see, there's no private sun, sin. We think that we can sin in private. There's no private sin. Fast forward a little bit, just in David's life. We see the effect of sin, of that spiral that David is finding himself in. Absalom rebels against David. David has to flee. Absalom takes David's wife, wives, and he sleeps with them on the rooftop, from the very same rooftop that he saw Bathsheba. Then, uh, uh, Solomon and all his wives. And eventually it ended, ended up that Israel is torn in two, the northern and the southern kingdom. David lost everything. And from that moment on, you know, that whole kingdom was just going down. David, uh, the Israel has never, ever, ever recovered from there. Sin is not private. Think about that. It's not just his life. It was Bathsheba. It was Uriah. 
It was the kingdom that, you know, that he was the king over. He was to be God's representative to the people. Broke the trust of the whole of Israel as well. And he thought that he can do that in private. But the question actually is, you know, if that is David's sin, and we see how he's dealing with his, with his sin, you know, the question should be is, how do we deal with our sin? How do we deal with our sin? Do we try to find excuses? Do we try to hide it? Do we try to, to reason our sin to say, well, you know, our sin is not as bad. You know, if I look at David, you know, he was a murderer. And all the other things that goes with that. So I'm not as bad as that. I look around me and I see some of my friends, you know, they've got worse lives than me. I'm not as bad as that. How do we deal with our sin? The question is, what did David do? Verse 13, David says to Nathan, just one, one sentence. He says, I've sinned against the Lord. When Nathan said to him, you are that man. Just one sentence. I've sinned against the Lord. Undignified. He comes up out in the open. The more astonishing thing is what Nathan tells David. He says, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. This man, murderer, adulterer, and every single thing, broke about just all the ten laws, I've sinned against God. Nathan says, God has put your sin away. How is it possible? Two sentences, just like that. Same verse. What happened in between those two things? But verse 14 says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. That is how God feels about sin. You've scorned the Lord. And then he says, The child who is born to you shall die. The fruit of our sin is death. And we need to know that. We can read those first five uh, uh, verses there in chapter 12. Think, that is David's sin. No, sin leads to death, full stop. Now, the answer that, that we find there in verse 13, you know, we have to look a little bit deeper at David's life. And then we look, look there in Psalm 32 and, and Psalm 51, and we actually find the answer there. And that's the answer that, that we have to examine in our hearts tonight as well. How did David deal with his sin? Why is it that God has said to him immediately there through Nathan, your sin has been put away? Psalm 32 verse 3 to 5 says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. Number 2, I did not cover up my iniquity. Number 3, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what does God do? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I will acknowledge it, I won't cover it up, I'll confess it. And if we come with that heart to God, then God will forgive it. But David goes a bit deeper in uh, verse, uh, uh, Psalm 51. First thing that we see in verse 51, if we read in verse 1, we see, we see that he's turning to God. 
Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Three times we see in that one verse, he's calling out to the mercy of God. He turns to his only hope, and his only hope is that mercy and love of God. There's no other place for us to go. You know, David tried, and it ended up in murder. He tried his way, and it just made it worse. And if we try to, to, to rectify our sin by ourselves, it will just get worse. There is no excuse for it unless we come to the mercy and love of God. The first thing he does, he turns helplessly to the mercy and love of God. How do we deal with that today? Unless we turn helplessly to Christ. Listen to what I say. Helplessly because we cannot help ourselves in our sin. We do not have the power to help ourselves in our own sin. Number two, he prays for cleansing from sin. That is in verse two. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then verse seven says, Purge, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now hyssop was that little branch that the priest would, you know, when they, before they moved out of uh, Egypt, take, put it in the blood, put it on the doorpost, and, you know, they'll just do the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And that made that the angel of death will pass over and they will not die. In the temple, that same hyssop was used and that was sprinkled in the temple for the forgiveness of sin. Purge me with hyssop. And the high priest had to do that. But we've got a greater high priest than the high priest that was in the temple. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not the blood of a lamb, but it is Jesus' blood that we have. To cleanse us. Lord, cleanse me. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it. Christ has purchased our forgiveness. And our high priest has done that. Now, you know, we still have to ask for forgiveness. It's not just like the blood has been shed and that just takes my sin away. No, it actually gives the basis for us to come back to Christ. And we have to ask Jesus for that forgiveness. David prays for that mercy of God that he will forgive him and make him clean again. Number three, he confesses his seriousness of his sin. And this is the place where, where David renders his heart before God. This is, this is the deepest place that, you know, that, that, that pit before he's turned back to God. He sits with God and he says, God, I can now understand the seriousness of my sin. It doesn't take away the consequence of the sin. But David understands what sin means in his life. The first thing he says, he says, I cannot get that sin out of my mind. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Have you ever woken up at night and say, Lord, this thing that I'm battling with, I don't know how to handle it. Knowing that your sin is busy drowning you. Secondly, he says, the exceeding sinfulness of his sin is only against God. He says, because, you know, there were other people as well, Bathsheba and Uriah and all of the other people. He says, but Lord, first and foremost, it is against you that I sin. Unless we know that, We'll keep on playing with our sin and think that it's not as bad as it is. 
against you, you only I've sinned, and I've done what is evil in your sight. Nathan said to David, God, that he has, he has scorned the, the word of the Lord. Thirdly, David vindicates God and not himself. Listen carefully to this. David vindicates God and not himself. Listen to what he says, verse 4 again. For that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. There's no self-justification. David, there's no but. Lord, I've sinned, but do you know how? No, there was nothing like that. There's no excuse. Lord, everybody else is doing it. Lord, if I look at the news, you know, that I can do that. If I, you know, if I look at the pressure of the world, then this is acceptable. No, it's not. Because if I read it in the Word, if the Bible says it's sin, then it's sin. I cannot reason it away. No self-justification, no defense, no escape. God is justified. God is blameless. So if, even if God had to put uh, 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 David in hell for his sin, God will still be justified. Because God's Word is just. And David knew it. God's, God will be innocent to that. Now, if we look at sin like this, that is radical God-centered repentance. Because I bring God into the center of my life. And I measure God with what I'm busy with in my life. When last have you done that? When last have you had that David moment? That is the, the Barak moment that David had. You know, where he had to drop down on his knees and say, well, Lord, I cannot but you can. And that shadow of Christ that we spoke about, you know, David felt that. That righteousness of Christ, you know, for him it wasn't Christ yet, but, you know, it is God's forgiveness that spilled into his life. Number four, he pleads for renewal. He says, created me a new heart, verse 10, verse 12, restore to me the joy of my salvation. In Psalm 32, verse 1, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. It's only when we are forgiven that we can call out and say, Lord, I rejoice, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of the effect of my sin. Lord, if I look to you and I have forgiveness, I can rejoice. Psalm 51, verse 15 again, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth that I will declare your praise. And then in verse 13, I love this, he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and the sinners will return to you. Lord, the way that I repent, the way that I deal with my sin, if the world has to look upon that, then they will have, I will have a testimony so that they can come to you. I will honor God in the way that I deal with my sin. Now at this point, you know, we can say, well, David, well done. You've done well. We all can applaud you. The way that you dealt, dealt with your sin. But again, how do we deal with our sin? Are we like, first, like David was in the beginning, dignified? Well, I can't tell anybody about this. You know, this is my private sin. No, sin is not private. Unless I come to the point of undignifying, dealing with my sin, facing it. Applying God's word to my life, I am still like David was before. Killing the word, just like he killed Uriah, I'll kill God's word in my life. 
so that God's word cannot convict me, but <laughs> we cannot go get away from that. Do we hide it? Do we cover our sin? Do we find excuses? Are we trying again to find that comparison to my friend? Nathan said to David, you are the man or the woman. You have sinned. Now, just like Nathan came to David, the Holy Spirit comes to us as well. Because in that prophetic voice that comes from, comes from, from, from Nathan, same way the Holy Spirit also speaks that prophetically in our lives as well. Because the Bible says to us that the Holy Spirit comes and He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So if we just tune our ears, if we, if we listen, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Like I tried to explain about that, that shadow, you know, Christ, uh, the same way David experienced that as well. He experienced, you know, that word, actually Christ's word that came into his life. And, you know, that contrite heart that David had, that brought him to his knees. That gave him that Barak moment in his life. If we have to fast forward into the New Testament, we can look in the book of Romans. In Romans 3, verse 21, listen to what the Bible says to us there. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is Christ. The righteousness of God has been manifested. There is a Golgotha. There is a cross. There is a cross. Just like David stood in the shadow, in the same way we stand today in the shadow of Christ. We standing in the shadow of the cross. All through the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The, wit the, sorry, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Listen to what verse 23 says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can try to reason our sin. But verse 23 says for us, for all have sinned. All means all. Do you know what the, the Greek uh, word is for all? Uh, all. In Greek, it is all. It stays all. doesn't matter what language you take it to. It stays all. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Listen to that. If we have Jesus, we are justified. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're thinking, Lord, how in the world will I ever get away from this sin? When I switch my computer on, that's the first place I'm going to. Or maybe I'm sitting with unforgiveness. Or maybe I'm battling with addiction. Lord, how can I get away from that? For all have sinned. But we can be justified in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. It comes through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God has put forward as appropriation by His blood. In other words, a substitute by His blood. To be received by faith. How do I receive it? I ask. Just like David asked for his forgiveness, we can ask for that forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. I have sinned. God has put your sin away. I have sinned. God has put your sin away. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, that is the Old Testament, that is the shadow, he has passed over former sins. That is the Old Testament. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time then so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus now. Is Jesus 
the justifier of your sin. Have you come to that point? Have you made business with your sin? C.H. Spurgeon says to us, when we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. If we deal seriously with our sin, God will deal gently with us. Let us have our Barak moment tonight. Let us come to the Lord and say, well, Lord, I need, I need forgiveness. Because this is not just a one-off thing. Yes, I, you know, there's a time that we say, well, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I've never asked Him to be my Lord and Savior. Then, if you've never done that, tonight is the night that you should do that. Because for all have sinned and fall short, and as long as we fall short, we do not have eternal life. We do not have it. But if we ask by faith, we are forgiven. I have sinned. Your sin is put away. You can do that tonight. If you want to fix your life up with Jesus, tonight is the night. Number one. Number two, it's also a daily justification, a sanctification in my life. Every single day, I'm being sanctified by Christ. I have my Barak moment every single day. Lord, help me. Lord, I see this thing is cre creeping closer, just like we you know it spoke there about sin. No, Lord, help me. My Barak moment. Lord, help me stand against the devil. I give my life to Jesus. I overcome sin. I have eternal life. But then it's a daily living with Him. I think that five verses in the Bible is one of, in Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 11, is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. A turn of a kingdom. Don't let your kingdom be turned today. Come to Jesus and He can forgive. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to do that tonight, don't you want to just put your hand up and say, Lord, this is my night. Anybody tonight? Don't, don't be shy. Not a, it's not a moment of, you know, well, I can be shy. No, it is a victory moment. Anyone? Well, if not that, then I would really, you know, as we sing the next song, come before the altar. I want you to come before the altar. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to mean real business with Jesus tonight, ask Him. Have your Barak moment with Jesus tonight. But remember, it's every single day. As long as we do that, we keep ourselves before Him in a Barak moment. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your righteousness. Thank You, Lord, that we can stand in the shadow of Your cross. Lord, know that we can know that we are forgiven. Forgiven, Lord, forever to be with you. In the same way, Lord, that David cried out, I have sinned. Lord, in the same way from the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ say, if you believe, if you have faith, then your sin is forgiven. 
And Lord, how many times did you say to people, then sin no more, sin no more, have a life in me. And Lord, as we live under your Lordship, I pray, Lord Jesus, that every single day, Lord, we would know the seriousness of sin, that we'll turn to, turn to you, Lord, and live a life victorious, Lord. Count the culture of how the world would want us to live, Lord. We would live for you victorious. Father, no matter what our friends would say, no matter what the influence of that would be, no matter what the news or the, or the culture would dictate to us, Lord, since they sin, Lord, and you stay, Lord, and Lord, we want to live a life that will give honor and glory to you. Help us in that. Help us in our walk with you, Lord. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.